0: This is the Becoming Educated podcast with me, Darren Leslie. I've been a teacher in Scotland for over eight years and I've loved every single minute of it. My mission in this podcast is to inform, challenge and inspire you to teach with joy. So for today's podcast, I am joined by Mark Enser. Mark has been a geography teacher for over a decade and is a head of department at Heathfield Community College. Mark writes regularly for the TES and contributes to the Guardian Teacher Network. Mark is also the author of Make Every Geography Lesson Count and Teach Like Nobody's Watching. Mark, thanks for joining me on the Becoming Educated podcast today.
1: Oh, thank you for inviting me on.
0: Not a problem. Um, we're going to focus most of our questions today on Teach Like Nobody's Watching, which I, I've just recently read, and, and I have to say that I, that I really, really enjoyed that, so thank you for writing that. Um, but just to kick us off and ease us if you could you tell us a little bit about you, your career in education, and how, how you come to, to write your books?
1: Um, I started teaching about 16 years ago. Um, I trained in uh, Gloucester. So I taught in schools there. Then I moved to Southampton to teach and then came to East Sussex. Uh, I've been a head of department for the last six years at Heathrow Community College, which I love. Um, and I've recently started working as their research lead as well. So taking on a bit more house school responsibility, which has been very interesting. And I started writing really just because I thought it was important that teachers had a voice. One thing that really concerns me is a lot of the things that used to be out then I think it's changing were written by people who had left the classroom years and years before who had never been in a classroom in some cases and this is where we were getting our ideas from and these were the only people who were having any say in education and I wanted to try and change that and try and just be a a voice from the classroom and talking about my own experiences and it just seemed to take off from there.
0: They certainly, they certainly have. Well, I like to kind of focus in on teach like nobody's watching. Um, you start that book with your three beliefs about teaching. Could you share what they are, please?
1: Uh, yeah. So the first one's always a little controversial, but I think teaching is fundamentally simple. I don't think um, there's anything particularly complicated about teaching it's something that seems to be innate to humans you know we are all teachers to some extent so I think it's it's fundamentally simple but my second belief is to do those simple things well can be complex so to do any of those kind of different steps of teaching there are better ways and less better ways of doing it in a vast array of different situations so that makes it complex and it's why we need to have teaching as a profession so you can actually get those complexities right but my third belief is that we have badly overcomplicated teaching and it doesn't need to be so complicated.
0: So how how have we overcomplicated teaching?
1: I think it happened when we started teaching for outside audiences. Um, and it comes from a variety of places. So I think Ofsted's been a big driver over the years. So doing things for Ofsted became a mantra when I started teaching in the early noughties. That was everything every single inset day CPD session is what does Ofsted want and then let's try and give it to them. I think Daisy Christodoulou's book Seven Myths about Education really shows the power that Ofsted had had in driving what was going on in schools, uh, but also doing things for parents, doing things for different members of SLT. So someone goes on a course, comes back, they want to introduce something, so you've got to do it for them, not because you're actually going to benefit your pupils in your classroom, doing things to please parents. You know the number of meetings I've sat in over the years. Is, where people have said our oh, homework policy isn't working what would work better well, let's do this everyone goes that'd be brilliant that'd make a massive difference then someone goes yeah but would parents like it so it gets ditched you know and that overcomplicates things so trying to do things not because your pupils will benefit but because a myriad other voices want you to do something else I think that's been a, a massive uh, complication for us
0: I would certainly agree with with some of the sentiments you said yeah so thinking about like your book there what does it actually mean
1: to teach like nobody's watching um just that really to to have the professional confidence to know what good teaching is and then to do it and and it has to start with knowing what good teaching is i I don't think you can just uh, demand autonomy based on nothing more than that's what you would like I don't think you you know you can't go in and go people should just leave me to do whatever I want I'm now going to teach via telepathy now that's how I think I should be able to teach I'm going to sit in my room and I'm going to beam my thoughts into the heads of my students I should have the autonomy to do that you you need to start with an idea of this is what I think works and it's grounded in something but once you've got a good idea of what works then we're professionals and we should be allowed to do those things that work for our pupils. That's really all all I mean is, is is seizing some of that control back.
0: I would certainly agree with that and I think understanding what, what great teaching perhaps is that is the area we need to maybe look more into. So we're gonna do that a little bit. Mm. Um, in your in your book you, you start you also say that there's four individual elements to lessons and we're gonna go through each one of them.
1: Could you tell me what they are, please? Yeah, I think this has been a little bit misunderstood. Um <sighs> The, the four kind of areas that I focus on are things that I think you see teachers do all of the time when left alone. Um, and by teacher, I mean teachers in the classrooms, professionals, but also adults teaching other adults to do things, whether it's driving a car or baking a cake, whatever it is, you see people start with some kind of recap. There's then uh, of what they did last and how it links to other things that they know. So you start with a bit of recap. There's then some kind of input. There's then something new that you're you're informing them about, showing them how to do. Then some kind of application where they try it themselves and then some feedback on how they did. Uh, but that, that's not to say that, that lesson should be planned with those four steps, that, you know, all lessons should start with four parts. You just recap, then do the then do the application, then you do the feedback – but lessons just naturally contain those four elements. Um, I'm always a little bit disheartened to see, I I get emails occasionally going, we've really loved your book and we're using it as a lesson planning pro forma in our schools. And I have to say, no, please don't. Can you you stop doing that? Because this is how uh, myths get started and bad ideas take hold. So I'd say they're the kind of four elements that you just see in natural teaching. So if you focus on doing those things really well, that will help us to teach and it will help us to teach nice and simply and um help with our workload. But it's not a lesson planning pro forma.
0: Certainly. We are we've certainly hoping to come to the end of a of an <laughs> age where we've taken these things and put them into tick boxes. It's more about actually understanding deeply what they are. That'd be how, nice. And how they apply. Well, we'll certainly try and do that through the through putting podcasts like this out there and through the work that we do with, with Research Ed and, and so on. So we'll take each of the four four elements and we'll go a bit deeper so we can help uh, teachers understand what 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 effective teaching access for each part of them is. So why should we then start lessons with a a recap or or like a a
1: quiz of some kind? Um, I think starting with some kind of recap serves a couple of different functions. So one thing it does is it helps us to develop our web of knowledge. So we sometimes call these kind of a schema kind of idea going all the way back to Piaget that that we develop these uh, webs of knowledge that we can then rely on um, in future situations. So one issue we sometimes have in schools is that our lessons become very fragmented and our curriculum becomes fragmented. So we are now doing a lesson on this thing. And if we're not careful, that thing can then stand alone. So I might do a lesson looking at deltas in geography, for instance. So I'm gonna do my lesson on deltas. And so if I just start by teaching them about deltas, it's not obvious to my pupils how that fits into things they've learned in the past. If though, I start with some kind of recap on low energy coastal environments, or I start with a bit of recap on how deposition takes place, or um, how longshore drift moves things along the coast in the first place, allowing for this, this deposition, then I'm making it really explicit to them how this new piece of information on deltas fits in with the rest of my subject. Um, so they develop that, that web of knowledge. So we're always kind of looking back and going that this is where this belongs. Think about it in light of this information. So we want to make that really clear. And I think a problem we have as teachers is that curse of knowledge. Those things are really obvious to us because we're experts in our field, but it's not obvious to them because they're not. They're novices. The other reason that we do a recap at the start is uh, to take advantage of the testing effect. So one reason why I would tend to use um, retrieval as a form of recap is that I want them to take some things out of their memory and then apply it in new situations. So a lot of people are using quizzes at the start of lessons, which is great. You know, I, I like a quiz. But one thing I see happening sometimes is uh, people choosing questions almost at random for the start of their lesson. So they're doing a kind of a, a, kind of you sometimes see question roulettes, which can work really effectively, where they have a question from last year, last topic, last week, but it doesn't matter what those questions are about. All they're then trying to do is practice that retrieval to strengthen that recall in the future. But I think that might be missing a trick. What I want to do is I want to start by deliberately retrieving things from previous lessons that they're going to use in this lesson. So I might have my quiz at the start of my lesson on deltas where I'm expecting people to uh, name some examples of low energy environments. Where I'm expecting them to recall the role of... um, fluvial deposits in a coastal system I, you know, I want them to recall things that are going to be directly applicable to this lesson so I'm then doing two things I'm developing their schema and I'm taking advantage of retrieval to help strengthen their long-term memory
0: certainly and retrie- retrieval practice is certainly something that, that's on the rise and I, have to, I agree yeah. with you there that you're seeing some of it and you're thinking is that actually related to your lesson but being deliberate in retrieving there is definitely something that if we get right Use the testing effect. It can have a strong impact, and and that retrieval strength and the storage strength and and the long term memory. So, thinking about recap, how do we, as teachers, then recap throughout a lesson and not just at the start?
1: Um, I think you do it by building it into your curriculum. So. One issue again we sometimes have is is there's this real focus on the lesson and this is where people take ideas like you know having these four ideas and we're gonna have a lesson plan around it and somewhat miss the point because recap isn't something that just happens at the start. If it's built into your curriculum, then it will inevitably happen throughout so you now that if i keep using that same example you know i'm going to teach pupils about um deltas and we're going to start by recapping something on um low energy environments maybe they've looked at the nile delta we're looking at low energy environments so then when we look at deltas well that lesson is going to use the nile delta as an example they're naturally going to be drawing on things they've learned in the past i'm going to be using the same terms that i've used in the past i'm going to be talking about deposition i'm going to be talking about um, sediment flows so I'm just naturally using that same language in the future that that draws on things that that they've previously studied. It shouldn't be okay. Let's quiz. Let's let's get those key terms out now. Let's never use them again. It needs to be part part of the lesson. Again, okay, it's that deliberate planning of your of your curriculum
0: mm-hmm. and your program of work to to have that built in so moving on now to to the input chapter you start that chapter discussing behavior management why do you think it's important to
1: discuss that first Um, because if you don't get the behavior right you can't teach You, you can't do anything else if the pupils aren't paying attention then you're largely wasting your time you, you, you may as well just go home because if they're not if they're not taking anything in, if they're not if they're not focused on what you're saying or what another pupil's saying, then they're not learning. They need to be thinking to be learning. And I think as when I started teaching, there, there was a real focus on um, pupils being left to discover things for themselves, a reduction in teacher talk and um, using far more kind of group work and open-ended tasks. And I think what this allowed me to do when I was starting teaching is actually to hide a lot of poor behaviour. Because I wasn't having to stand at the front and maybe talk for five minutes with their attention on me and to model and ask questions, I was very quick to go, right, quick, get into groups, get your sugar paper, um, start cutting things out and sticking things down. And, And pupils were then free just to chat and mess around because... They could, and and I could turn a blind eye here and there and let and let them get on with it. When you're stood at the front of a classroom and you have 30, 32 pupils who need to be sat in silence and listening and responding to what you're saying, there's nowhere to hide. Um, and if behaviour is not good, it becomes immediately apparent that it's not good. So you have to get their attention for teaching to happen. Um and for that to happen, they have to behave.
0: Certainly, can I go on that that idea of teacher talking and asking the questions? How important is it then that, that we as teachers have have really deep subject knowledge?
1: It's critical, I think. Um, Rob Coe's report a few years ago, what makes great teaching highlighted subject knowledge and uh, subject specific pedagogy is the two areas that have greatest impact on how effective a teacher is. Um, if you don't know what you're talking about, then you can't teach them it. You, you need to be the expert in the room. I think one issue you sometimes find, and I, I kind of get quite a lot of messages from teachers asking for help with various things. Is this belief that you can just stay one page ahead of of the pupils in the textbook? You know if you just read enough about where they're up to now, you can kind of get through and teach, but it it doesn't work if you're teaching in this way because you're always trying to link different topics together. So you you not only have to have a really deep knowledge of what you're currently teaching, but you have to have a really deep knowledge of what has already been taught, that you may not have been the teacher delivering but they have learned previously as part of the curriculum. And you have to have a really deep knowledge of what's gonna come later so you can prepare pupils for it. It is not enough to just stay slightly ahead of them and to know a little bit more about them, a little bit more about a topic than they currently know. You, You have to really know your subject. And you have to be able to draw on, certainly in geography, a really wide range of different examples and anecdotes and case studies and places. And you have to know them and have them to hand because you don't know exactly what the pupils are going to ask. You don't know always what they're going to struggle with. And so you might be... Example recently, I was kind of uh, teaching pupils about uh, rivers, It a GCSE class about rivers. And it became apparent really early on that some pupils still had some fairly fundamental misconceptions about how rivers behaved. There were still a few pupils who thought that rivers started at the sea and then moved inland. They, they hadn't really grasped the idea of water running downhill. Which is a little worrying um but, but they hadn't and so we had to stop and, and and kind of teach that aspect before we could move on and i had to just very very quickly form an idea of how i was going to deliver that in that moment so i had to have that knowledge to hand to go okay well here's a quick diagram this is how i can explain it and this is how i can make it really clear to you and and teaching is endlessly responsive what makes it so exhausting is that you're doing improvised theatre in the classroom for five hours a day. It is shattering, but it's all based on your subject knowledge. Certainly would agree with that. We get a lot of
0: students in our school, and the first thing, I'm a, I am teach physical education, and in terms of our subject knowledge, we could teach up to ten different sporting activities, and it is difficult to get the, the nuance to kind of ideas within an activity but I, I do encourage our students when they come out to teach to, to really get to grips with all the activities that we're teaching in the school so that they can know them they can know them inside out so they can recognize um, where people's are, are, are maybe getting the technique wrong or, or getting their decision making wrong and they can then use stories and anecdotes and different bits and take from other activities and say, well, you could do this when you're playing tennis, so we can apply that when you're playing badminton as well. And I, I, I really do think that deep subject knowledge is something we should really be focusing a lot of our, a lot of our professional learning on, but that's just just my mm-hmm. my opinion. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> during the, the input phase, you spoke about teacher talk, we've spoken about subject knowledge. What does effective questioning look like during the, the input phase?
1: Um, I think it starts with having a very clear purpose, your questions and so understanding why you're asking them. I think because questioning is such an important technique we can be led to believe that questioning is a good in and of itself and so certainly when you see um, teachers teach sometimes they'll just ask a lot of questions for the sake of asking questions and one thing that I found very helpful is trying to move away from the guess what's in my head. Method of questioning, you know, does anybody know? If there's no reason for them to know, then why are we asking in the first place? You, you'll see teachers saying, What's anyone know the capital of Ghana? I don't know. Yeah, you know, if they do, well, what have I learned? How's that useful to me? If they're just about to start studying that topic, why do I want to start by knowing whether three kids in the class can tell me what the capital of Ghana is and the other 27 can't? What do I then do as a result of that question? So Starting by kind of thinking, OK, what is this question for? What, what's the function of it? Am I asking this question because I just want to make sure that they're still with me, that they're following my explanation? So maybe I'm asking some questions to check that they have listened and taken in the things that I've just said. And then I'm up to target those pupils who I know often don't listen. And so I'm targeting questions that way. Am I asking questions as a form of retrieval? am i deliberately asking questions that relate to things that we've studied in previous lessons and i want them to think hard about well if i'm doing that and i want all 32 pupils to be thinking and retrieving the information then i need to make sure i ask the question in such a way as to get them to retrieve so rather than saying um the pupil's name first and then the question so michael could you tell me well that means everyone not called michael switches off i want to ask the question and then say Okay, Michael. Can you tell me? Because hopefully that way everyone's tried to think of the answer in case they've been chosen. Other times I might want to ask questions because I want to actually deepen their understanding. I want to use some of those kind of Socratic questioning techniques. So pupils maybe give quite a simplistic answer. So um, I don't know. um, Do are human factors important in causing flooding? So I ask kind of a question like that, and someone says yes. Go okay. Why? Uh, can you can you um, give me a case where that wouldn't be true can can you um, give me some examples of some evidence that would actually challenge that assumption Um can you give me some evidence to back up your assumption some kind of asking questions to deepen their understanding and to get them to think like a geographer would have to think and those kind of questions need a bit of planning in advance and they're quite hard to do on the spur of the moment um but i think good questioning has to start with a very clear purpose for asking that question because that will then change the way you ask the question so form follows function so the function of the question is therefore i'm going to do it in this way
0: so in that case do you do you plan your questions before you you enter the lesson or do you plan a series of questions for a for a, a longer episode a program more a longer program of work how do you approach that
1: um, usually lesson by lesson so some questions will just be spur of the moment because they can be so questions to quickly check a bit of retrieval some might come up in the lessons that's what i'm asking or questions to check they're paying attention they don't really need planning but the the kind of the the deeper questions i need to give a bit of thought to first so if i'm going to be looking at that issue of does human action contribute to flooding what questions do I want to ask the class that's going to elicit that deeper understanding Um, and they're harder to come up with in the spur of the moment and and when you try they often well I certainly find are less successful than if I've just taken some time to plan out just a few bullet points these are the things that I'm going to ask in this order in this way um, to to make sure that I'm getting the pupils to think really hard about the topic.
0: So can I we've covered input there we're now on to to application so what is the aim of the of the application phase and and how do we get that right
1: so when we want pupils to um do application what we really just mean is we want them to practice that's it really you know it's just a fancy way of saying get, get them to get them to practice so if they've had a lot of input they've had a lot of new information they need to do something with that information so they learn it they need to the chance to think you know dan willingham's memory is the residue of thought if they haven't had the chance to think about the things they've just heard then they're going to lose it it's not going to enter their long-term memory they're not going to be able to apply it to different things we've all just wasted our time so application is going to look very, very different in different subjects. and It's one of the hardest parts of the book to write because it looks so different in other subjects. So the, there's a limit to how much generic advice you can give on application. And I didn't want to give generic advice um, that didn't apply to other subjects because this is, again, how myths and things are, are created. So I think there's kind of a few things that apply in most subjects. So certainly when we get pupils to apply we want them to think hard so we want to get to the point where there's kind of a bit of a payoff where they're not just us answering small questions comprehension questions but they're actually starting to put things together to answer bigger more meaningful questions something just a little bit meatier to get stuck into so the example before um, Do humans contribute to flooding? You know, what what were the causes of the Boscastle flood? How did people respond? Did they respond in the right way? Just something that's a little bit more in depth where they're going to apply a range of different bits of information to. Um, The other thing that we have to be really careful with, with application and practice, is making sure that when they get to that point, they're able to get it right. We don't rush into the application phase. We think about Rosenshine's principles, the idea of achieving a high success rate first. Uh, Practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. So I was talking to someone who um, is a swim coach and they were saying that they would much rather have someone who couldn't swim, that they were going to teach to swim, than someone who'd been splashing around in a pool badly for 30 years, picking up all kinds of bad technique that would first have to untrain them in before teaching them how to swim properly. And I think we see the same thing in the classroom sometimes. We go, quick, go and write an essay on this. And they don't know how to. So they badly write an essay. They... Um, practice lots of bad technique that we then have to give them massive amounts of feedback on to unpick all the things they did wrong so that next time hopefully they get it right whereas when they start applying the thing that we've taught them we want them to practice doing it right so they learn how to do it right
0: so how important then is modeling because i think modeling can be applied to to almost every subject in terms of you've mentioned essay writing or practical subjects like physical education we can model the technique in art we can model the the style
1: i think so how how key is that i think is critical i don't think there's anything really more important in the classroom than, than effective modelling because that's how pupils learn. It's how humans learn. We, we copy. We, we see someone else do something and then we mimic them and we copy them until we can do it ourselves. And once we can do it ourselves, then we can be a bit more creative and, and we can start doing things in different ways and trying things in different ways. But we have to get it right first so that we then got something to practice with. So I think uh, live modeling is something that we're seeing much more in the classroom, which is really good, kind of the rise of things like visualizers allowing us to do that. It's kind of an example of where EdTech really seems to be helping um, teaching rather than um, kind of adding on. Uh, new and exciting things that never really take off, but we kind of can say with visualizers that that it just allows us to do something more effectively than we could before. So we can model how to write a paragraph. and while we're modeling, we can then also explain our thinking. So I'm doing this because we're kind of getting into that disciplinary thinking. You know, this is how I approach that type of question. Um, and you can also show what you do when you get stuck. You know, I don't know what to write next, so I'm going to do this. Um, I didn't quite understand the question here. So my way of getting around that is, you know, this is what I'm going to do. You can kind of explain the whole process. You're not just modelling the answer, but how you arrived at the answer, which I think is important. Um, The other reason that modelling is important is it dramatically reduces the amount of feedback that you need to give. If you get modelling right, essentially, it's a kind of feed forward rather than a kind of feedback. You're saying, this is how I want it to look, make it look like this, rather than go away, make a load of mistakes, and then I'll tell you you got it wrong. It just seems a bit mean. (laughs) If you know how to do it right,
0: tell them how to do it right in the first place. Certainly, I like what you you said there in terms of uh, introducing the the Rosenshine principles and saying for success, so if we're doing modelling, for doing it right, and and definitely a, a Kind of, i mean all every time i'm, I'm watching some of our math teachers because they're just brilliant at using the visualizer and the smart board and and modeling their thinking and then that makes it easier and then as you say it makes it makes it easier to provide feedback later which kind of moves us nicely on so feedback is is, is so important to move learning forward but we often overcomplicate it how do we manage to make feedback that meaningful and impactful
1: um I think the biggest issue we've had with feedback is the way it became conflated with marking. And so that became the default form of feedback. You know, feedback just meant putting written comments in books. And that was feedback. Um, And I think that became problematic because it's rarely the most effective way to give feedback. There's kind of a whole wide range of ways that, that people give feedback to each other um so if we think you know outside the classroom if somebody was cooking and they said oh could you taste this what do you think and you tasted it and said hmm okay well i'm going to write something down and then in a couple of hours i'm going to let you look at it and then you can think about what you're going to do with that information they'd think you were mad but that's how we have tended to give feedback in the classroom we take in some work eventually you get around to looking at it we write some comments on days later they get it back and they're expected to do something with that information hopefully um The other problem with that form of feedback is it tends to improve the work and not the student. So the feedback we give is, you know, this work isn't very good. You know, why not add this information in because that would improve this one piece of work? Well, that's fine in some cases if what you're getting them to do is to reproduce that exact thing again. Then you might want to give feedback on how to improve that exact thing. But certainly in my subject they're never going to answer that exact question again. They're going to answer similar questions in different contexts, in different places. So the feedback I give needs to allow them to do that, it needs to be something they can apply to different things. And that's quite hard to do through written comments on a piece of work. So the feedback that I find is most effective is feedback that's given live at the point the pupils are doing the work. So that that's useful. So as they're doing it going, oh, actually you've made an error there. Let's have a look. What do you need to do instead? Because that way, they're not embedding the error into their work. So let's correct it at this point. Or it's feedback that can be given to the whole class about something that they got wrong on the previous piece of work that they can then apply to what you're going to do next. So, you know, I've looked at what you all did on this question. Um, I noticed most of you misunderstood the concept of sustainability. You only talked about it in terms of the environment. You've got the economic and social considerations. So now we're going to do a piece of work on sustainability where I want you to do these things. You know, apply what the mistakes you made last time to this next piece of work. And you can make it much more targeted that way. And again, it's just about being responsive um, rather than that wasn't good enough. If this question comes up again, try and remember what you did wrong, and hopefully you'll get it right next time. It doesn't work like that.
0: I like that. Like we said there about about being responsive. I wrote in a recent blog post that I produced about responsive being a responsive teacher is just being a bloody good teacher. is <laughs> Responding to the to the work there. You wrote an interesting one. Um, pedagogy versus plenary. Mm. Why then is why is the end of a lesson the worst
1: time to give feedback? um to be honest i think the issue is more that it's the worst time to get feedback rather than the worst time to uh, give it so often when we think about kind of the the end of the lesson think about plenary tasks the idea is to find out whether pupils had understood something or not that's kind of what plenaries are designed for you know did you understand the thing that i taught you well the problem is if you get that information at the end of a lesson firstly you might only be getting mimicry you don't know if they f- genuinely understood it and learned it or can they just remember enough to repeat back the thing that they've just been told you know do you, do they genuinely understand it's, it's, a, it's an odd time to find out you be better off waiting a few days and then doing a quiz or another task to find out if they've actually understood it you know give it a little while have they actually learned it the other problem is even if you are genuinely testing whether they have understood it and you do it at the end of a lesson well then what do you do if they haven't understood it and you find out as they're walking out the door do you run down the corridor after them saying you got that wrong come back this is you know I don't want you to leave my classroom with a misconception that you've revealed that you've discussed and therefore thought about and embedded and then I'm leaving you to go off with that misconception active in your mind if you're revealing a misconception I need to address it there and then so that it's drawn out exposed and corrected so I tend to think anything that was done for a plenary is usually best done at the beginning of the next lesson when you've then got time to do something with the information. I think where it can sometimes work, I suppose, is if you're trying to almost do a little survey that you're then going to base your next lesson on. And if you have the kids, so maths, English, where they see the kids almost every day, you might get in something useful go, ah, right, next lesson I'm going to do something with that information and so I want some time to prepare for something but as a general rule it seems like a pretty poor time to do a plenary
0: so moving on to to more on the curriculum then in your curriculum chapter you offer some some food for thought when planning a program of study what do you say what do you say and what do you offer there oh blimey um
1: that's a big question (laughs) part two of the book um i suppose at its most fundamental is a reminder that the word curriculum means a journey you know that, that's kind of that you know that the root of the word is um the root of a race you know the, the curricula the, the the root of a race it's a journey from a to b and so we want to just remember that when we're planning our curriculum we're taking our pupils on a journey um and so they're going from one thing to another and and, and the, those things need to be related to each other the the, the problem that we sometimes find, I think I said earlier on, is that everything ends up being taught in isolation and we end up with this series of silos with no particular connection between them. So we see in geography all the time people doing right we're going to do a topic now on the geography of sport at the beginning of year eight because we want to engage the boys so we're going to do geography of sport first and then we're going to go on to do tectonics because they're going to be doing their options soon so we best teach them tectonics because they're interested in it and they'll then do geography at gcse so we can do that next now we're going to do something on rivers because it's in the national curriculum and then we are going to do something on brazil because we've got an old scheme of work on it And so you end up with this kind of really piecemeal approach where nothing's taught in any particular order. And, you know, that could have been completely jumbled up and nobody would notice. Um, And the topics don't relate to each other. So one thing that I try and keep in mind is that we want these kind of threads that run through our topics. So... um, We're building a a tapestry, a big picture made up of these individual things. So we're going to look at tectonics, and then tectonics is going to be revisited in the next few topics as well, where they're going to apply what they learned in that topic to these future ones. So we're going to look at issues around sustainability, but these issues will come up again, and you're going to look at this again. Nothing's being taught in isolation. Everything connects to what comes after.
0: Definitely it's that idea that Mary Might talks about you know, going from Gollum to coherence mm-hmm. having a more coherent yeah. coherent journey. Um concept that kinda I've gotta ask a couple of questions about concepts that kinda for me and in, in the discussions that I have are relatively new. I know about interleaving, but you mentioned
1: interweaving versus interleaving. Why mm. should we consider that in our curriculum planning? Really, just because the idea of interleaving often gets very, very confused. So in most research literature, and Jonathan Firth wrote a brilliant piece for the Chartered College, which is open access, that's worth reading on interleaving. What they really mean is teaching two easily confused concepts side by side. What And they found that that was more effective than teaching those concepts apart. So, for instance, in art, we might want to teach Monet and Manet at the same time because otherwise pupils might easily confuse them. Um, rather than doing one lesson on Monet, then a lesson on Manet, you know, we do like right, look at these these two artists together, and we're going to contrast them because then then you'll be able to uh, recall it better in the future. So that's kind of really what we mean by interleaving. But what happened is people started to think that interleaving meant trying to mix your topics up so there's a consultant somewhere i don't know who it is but they're roaming around the schools in east sussex so i seem to be following them into schools and what they've told people to do is to do things like teach urbanization on monday and then teach tectonics on tuesday and then do your topic on resource management on friday and then the following week come back to urbanization on monday and come back to tectonics on tuesday and that will be interleaving you'll kind of mix up your topics on different days because that will take into account the spacing effect and it'll be a desirable difficulty and it just mangles the curriculum. It's just this weird um, over enthusiasm for certain elements of cognitive science that then lead people doing some very, very bizarre things. So interleaving I find means something very, very specific that doesn't apply to very many situations and, and it's getting misused. So I quite like the idea of interweaving, which is simply, as I was saying before, taking those threads and putting them through your curriculum. So as I say, you know, tectonics, we might look at the beginning of year eight, but then it's going to come back when they look at East Africa, because we look at the Great Rift Valley, then it'll come back when we look at our local landscape here, we look at the anti, uh, the and anticline, and then it will come back again when they look at Haiti, and why is Haiti the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere? Is it because of the earthquakes? And So this, this Thread reoccurs. We're weaving this thread through and revisiting previous concepts, but we're not just jumbling our topics up and throwing random bits of information in at random points.
0: You've kind of that very well. Thank you. Uh, finally, before
1: we move on to some of the features, uh, what are threshold concepts? Um, threshold concepts was an idea created by two um, economics lecturers, uh, Maya and Land. Um, back in the early noughties, I think 2004, they had a very, very good paper out on threshold concepts and this idea of troublesome knowledge. And what they found was that pupils would get stuck at certain points. Their students would seem to be making good progress through the course and then would suddenly not make any future progress. And what they identified was that subjects have what they term threshold concepts, that if pupils haven't understood become a barrier to future progress. So in geography, for instance, sustainability might be a threshold concept. If they haven't fully grasped the concept of sustainability, a lot of what we teach them later won't make any sense to them. They they need to understand that concept to understand other things. It's a threshold concept. I'd also argue that in geography, the idea of the earth being a sphere is a threshold concept. We often represent the world in a 2D image and pupils, Uh, kind of integrate that image into their schema and so when they picture the world they picture that typical map projection of a very large Greenland a tiny little Africa uh, the Greenwich Meridian running down the center so the UK in the center of the world um, America and China on opposite sides of the earth that's their image of the world and so they really struggle to understand things like countries around the Pacific Ocean, because to them, they're on opposite sides of the Earth. They, they don't fully see the Earth as a sphere. And so they have to understand that to understand issues around trade and migration, elements of tectonics, or they can't make future progress. So a threshold concept is something you have to understand if you're going to understand what comes next.
0: Brilliant. Very well summed up there, Mark. Thank you. Um, we're coming to the end of the, the, the question part of the interview i've got two features features for you if, if you're up for that but before we do that could you share with listeners where they could find out more about you where they could perhaps contact you
1: and of course where they can buy your book <laughs> um i'm very very easy to find because i live on twitter so they can find me there at ensamark um they can find me at Heathrow Community College. I'm a full-time teacher, so they can always drop me an email. And I'm I'm around there. I've got my blog, uh, which I don't use nearly enough these days, but Teach Real at WordPress. Um so they can find me there. Um and in terms of my books, um, Amazon, Waterstones occasionally, um, but yeah, that, they should be fairly easy to get as well. And they're published by Crown House. Brilliant. Um, so I'm gonna I've got a feature that I've
0: been running through my last couple of podcasts yeah I'm trying to build a a, a dream school I've got some excellent contributions I mean um, one of my guests offered up Stormzy as as his English teacher (laughs) so for you if you could choose anyone dead or alive
1: to teach you geography who would you choose that's a big question Um, I'm nowhere near cool enough to suggest someone like Stormzy (laughs) Um, there's some brilliant geography educators out there working in kind of geography education um so someone like david lambert um alex standish um, richard Bustin' written a, a fantastic book on powerful knowledge and geo capabilities which is just incredible um so probably someone like that someone working kind of in geography education with a really deep understanding of the subject so not a cool answer um, but, but an academic one I suppose no
0: thank you very much uh, so I want my, my final three questions that, that I've mm. asked all my guests so far um, and the first one there is what book or text has has had the biggest impact on your teaching career
1: okay that's an easy one that'd be uh, Making Every Lesson Count uh, Sean Allison and Andy Tharby it completely changed the way that I saw teaching um, I was becoming a bit bored a bit jaded their book came out in 2015 and I just I didn't realized that these conversations were being had I, di- I didn't realize that this educational research was out there that it was available to teachers that we could access it read it change what we did talk about it pick it apart it just opened my eyes to a whole new world of education um so yeah that that changed everything for me a brilliant book and they're writing a sequel now which is very very exciting i've see,
0: I seen that i've seen that yes. on Twitter. i've seen uh, that i've only like, I- i've been teaching for eight years and i've only mm-hmm. just the last six months came across since i started doing this actually yeah came across some of the things and and the the discussions i'm now having with people are, are just blowing me away and, and that book is definitely one that i read early on and definitely it's making mm-hmm. has made me think and also, oh, so you, you contributed to that series in the Geography one, so yeah. if there's Geography teachers out there, I definitely encourage them to get that. Um, second question, if you could just give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what
1: would it be? <laughs> teach like nobody's watching. <laughs> That's it. If you can teach like nobody's watching, then you can relax and actually enjoy teaching. Um, oh, yeah, relax. I, I, it, people take... Teaching far too seriously, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm immersed in teaching. I read about it, I write about it, I, I do it, you know, (laughs) constantly. Um, But sometimes we just need to remember that nothing terrible is going to happen if you have a bad lesson. It's okay. Just, just, just breathe. It's fine. Relax. Enjoy it. Get on with it. Um, Don't worry. Brilliant. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, My last question for you: something that really interests me. What do you think most gets in the way of just great teaching in
1: classrooms? It's those overcomplications again. I think the thing that gets in the way is the fear of those outside observers. And there's such a huge array of them. It does become very, very difficult. Everyone wants to control what goes on in schools which isn't necessarily surprising because we're taking our nation's young people and we're shaping them for the future so it perhaps is not surprising that everyone wants to have their view represented Um, everyone thinks they know what education is for everyone wants to um try to control the way that teachers teach the purpose of teaching what goes on the curriculum every single person wants to say and so shutting out some of those voices and letting teachers voices come to the fore is a huge challenge but i think it's a really important thing that we that we try to do
0: certainly echo that mark well that's us come to the end so i'd like to thank you very very much for offering me your time during this half term, it's very generous of you, and thank you so much for the contributions that you've made to the, the podcast today. Carl, oh, thank you for having me on, it's been fun. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast today, I really do appreciate it. If you want to find out more about what was discussed today, please head over to my website, becomingeducated.co.uk. And finally, if you haven't done so already, I would really love it if you were to subscribe to the podcast. That way, All future episodes will be downloaded directly into your feed. And before you go, please always remember to teach with joy.